Well, you're listening to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Well, human trafficking in America is a difficult topic to discuss, especially when we're talking about children and victims of all ages and all genders. The issues may seem apparent, but sometimes the lines are blurred when advocates for legal prostitution and, quote, sex workers' rights and, quote, lobby for legalization. Founded in 1962, the National Center on Sexual Exploitation, the NCOSE, is the leading national nonpartisan organization exposing the links between all forms of sexual exploitation, such as child sexual abuse, prostitution, sex trafficking, and the public health harms of pornography. Today, we have Dr. Michael Shively, Senior Advisor on Research and Data Analysis for the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. Dr. Michael Shively is dedicated to supporting those working to prevent and responds to exploitation and abuse. Throughout his 30-year career in applied research, he has provided practitioners, legislators, agency managers, and advocates with information and tools used to advance their efforts to address human trafficking, sexual violence, and other forms of victimization. Welcome to Policing Matters, Dr. Michael Shively. Well, thanks for having me here. Yeah, it's great work that you do. Thank you for what you do in the organization. How did you get into the specific arena of human trafficking and sexual exploitation? Well, my background's in applied research, so that's my training. And I've been doing that for 35 years now. And, um, you know, I'm very pragmatic and focused on results. And uh, my goal has always been to put information in the hands of the doers that are out there, whether it's in public health or law enforcement or anywhere else, and to try to support decisions and priorities. And uh, when I first learned of the issue of human trafficking, I was hooked on it. It just seemed like such an extreme thing and take the most vulnerable people and do the worst possible things to them. And I felt like, you know, I had no choice. It's like, you have to try to do something about this. So, you know, my skill sets as a researcher, I'm not a police officer or prosecutor on the front lines, but what I can hope to do is to support them and what they do. And obviously, you know, none of law enforcement operates in a vacuum either. So, you need the community, you need the public, you need decision makers, politicians, they, they all have to get it. You know, people really have to understand about the severity of a problem and where it, where it lives and what makes it tick. And, and also to know about what works, you know, that's, that's key is to just try to figure out analytically, not politically, not emotionally, but really just, you know, bottom line, is this thing that we're doing to try to solve this problem? Is it working or not? Is there a better way to do it? Is there something that's more efficient or effective? So that's, that's what I try to bring to the table and put it in the hands of, uh, of the people that, that are on the front lines with this issue. Yeah, and that's exactly what we, we need. I, you know, I teach and a lot of my students when I ask them to name a victimless crime, uh, some of them undoubtedly will say prostitution. And, you know, we get into a discussion about the roots of how people get into prostitution. And I think, you know, some of them come to a realization that it is not something that people aspire to be when they're young, right? To be like a policeman or a fireman or a doctor or whatever. And and then when they hear about the background of of these individuals who end up in it and, you know, broken homes and child sexual abuse and and all these other things that that lead to this. It's great to have someone like you who brings to the table and to the discussion facts and statistics and, and evidence-based research. So I appreciate that. Is your focus on the educating the general public or are you uh, specific in efforts to law enforcement to bring um, this research to law enforcement to help them with the issues? Well, I do both, and I think you need both. And uh, the organization, the National Center on Sexual Exploitation, also does both. You know, we we do make broad appeals, and we try to do, you know, education, like a public education sort of model. And, you know, basically any opportunity to get information, the facts, uh, out there in front of people is is helpful, you know, anything. 
we do have very you know specific efforts to try to uh, deal with law enforcement. For example, we do have a training program that we're you know we have a uh, a retired uh, police officer, thirty year veteran of the LAPD, who spent nine years uh, leading the vice unit in LA. And she's an extremely experienced police trainer, and she's been there on the front lines. You know, she sees with her, saw with her own eyes thousands of times what a mess you get when there is prostitution, you know, and some of that is trafficking and some of it is prostitution and it's all a mess. And, uh, you know, she's seen, uh, you know, what works and what doesn't, you know, on an experiential level. So we do have a police training program that we're just building up right now. And we have a couple of police departments that early next year that we're going to be, you know, in, in the departments doing training with them. Some of it is focused on demand reduction that law enforcement can do and, and does do. And some of it is is about identifying human trafficking and trying to distinguish it from other things and figure out what to do with it. You know, so how do you, how do you know that's trafficking as opposed to something else? And, you know, so what are the steps of, of making that identification and then doing the case management behind it? You know, what are the steps after that? So, um, you know, we definitely don't put ourselves in a position of saying, you know, we're smart and we know better. So we're going to tell you what to do. What, what we represent is we've accumulated from the field of law enforcement best practices. Hmm. Well, and that, that's, that's the approach. So we do have actual police officers and we do have researchers that have been in the criminal justice research arena for decades. And it's really trying to compile the best practices, you know, what has been tried, what seemed to work, what didn't. And, you know, how can you, how can the same, idea be adapted for different places. So for example, in Los Angeles is a massive police department and they have, you know, the resources to have great deal of specialization and specialized human trafficking units and vice units. Well, you know, there's a, a city Montpelier, Vermont that we're working with right now. They have 12. They don't have specialized vice units. So, so, you know, it's basically about how do you adapt, uh, you know, the police training and the outreach, but then also to help the police departments of all different types of sizes and configurations and demographics. How do you put them in the best positions? And, you know, we actually try to be led by them. You know, mm -hmm. what we've done in the, in the police departments we're working with now is saying, what do you need? You know, I mean, what do you know you need? And then during the conversations, you know, we may be aware of some things they they aren't aware of that they could use. And it's simply because they haven't had the occasion to run into it yet. Hmm. So, um, you know, it's, it's very much a collaboration, you know, it isn't us, you know, saying we know what to do and just, you know, listen to us. It's, you know, we listen first and then we work with them to say, well, let's try to hook you up with other places. And, and I think probably the most valuable thing that we do is to make connections with other law enforcement, hmm. you know, so, um, you know, we're in Montpelier, Vermont and you know, police departments in Ohio and Florida and Texas, and we're building a network. And it's like, wait, so I, I haven't done that myself, but I know a guy in St. Petersburg, Florida, who's doing exactly that or running into that same problem. You guys should talk, right? So yeah. it's that sort of, you know, a collaboration that really drives, I think, successful sort of work with law enforcement. Well, those are great strategies. I mean, why reinvent the wheel if somebody's doing... Right something good. Um, yeah, it's, you know, we're, we're limited in funding and limited in research as, as standalone departments. And sometimes we can be isolated. So that's a great strategy to, to use what's working out there. Um, you've got some really, you know, I've, I've gone through your website and there are all sorts of great resources and good programs that you have. I want to talk about one specifically after the break, but I want to ask you, so, you're on that one side uh, saying, hey, this is what you can do to thwart, you know, these things and help the victims <clears throat> of prostitution and trafficking. But what's the message to advocates who are calling for legalized prostitution or, you know, as I said in the introduction, quote, sex work? Uh, the, the bottom line message is it it never delivers the promises that the advocates say that, uh, will happen. Uh, advocates argue that um, 
you know, it's the oldest profession. It's been around forever. We've never been able to stop it. So the best thing we can do is try to work with it, try to make it safer, you know, try to do some harm reduction and just concede the fact we're, we're stuck with it, right? So that's, that's the argument. And the argument also is that most of the harm that actually happens in commercial sex, whether it's prostitution or sex trafficking, but in the prostitution realm, you know, they argue that it's really the stigmatization and the criminalization and driving it underground that generates the vast majority of the problems. And uh, it, it's really hard to say anything other than it is just simply wrong. Uh, you know, the evidence is overwhelming that when you allow prostitution to operate unabated, it just simply gets worse and you get more of it. Uh, it doesn't destigmatize it. You know, the stigma is from the act itself. You know, I mean, most almost every society in the world has criminalized it over time. And uh, sometimes it's not done well or effectively or fairly or any of that. But the thing is, there is a, a general repugnance from almost every society towards selling sex. And, you know, the concept that anything should be able to be sold is something that we reject. Um, you know, you can adopt a child. Uh, you can donate a kidney. You know, you can't sell children. You can't buy children. You can't buy a kidney. Why? Because when those things are commodified, bad things happen, and we know it. So what you hear is a lot of claims, and they claim that there's a lot of research showing that the stigmatization and criminalization makes it worse. And uh, it's just simply wrong. And it's also a subset of the research. What they do is they cherry pick the, the things that they can piece together to make it sound as if there's a great deal of evidence. Do a simple Google search, and what you find in the in Google Scholar is well over seven hundred thousand studies of prostitution, and you can come out of there with anything you want. You know, right. if what you're doing is cherry picking the findings that are friendly to whatever your argument is, if you're fair about it, and if you go in there with your eyes wide open and you know what you're doing, and you look through all the evidence, the weight of the evidence is just crushing. It is overwhelmingly against decriminalizing or legalizing prostitution. And, you know, you don't have to get pointy-headed researchy about it. You don't have to be technical or about it or anything. There's just simply the experience and the research together. Just look look at what's happened anywhere they've decriminalized or legalized prostitution. And you can find little tiny pockets in legalized prostitution where you can say it, it may be better. But, but if that's true at all, it's usually the one or two percent of the market could get margin, marginal improvements. But that mm -hmm. is more than offset by the rest of it. So I could talk at length about Nevada, you know, if you'd like, uh, Amsterdam, Germany. Any place where they've said, let's set it up and regulate it and treat it as a business. So that's the sex workers work. Okay, well, if sex workers work, let's treat it that way and see what happens. And it's a disaster. You know, in, in, Los, in uh, Nevada, there are somewhere between 150 and 500 women legally working in the legal regulated brothels. And then they say, well, there's very low HIV and sexually transmitted disease rates. Well, one reason there's low rates in the legal brothels is as soon as you test positive, you're out. So they filter out everyone that gets infected while they're working there. And then, you know, you see that there isn't a high infection rate. Uh, but then the biggest problem is that we're talking about 1% of the market. The, the estimates of the advocates for sex work will say that there are 20 to 30,000 women selling sex just simple, just in the city of Las Vegas. Wow. And it's all illegal. So what, what you get when you decriminalize or when you legalize, like they did in Nevada, you get this tiny little fraction occurs inside the legal system and the vast majority is outside of it. So that, that has happened in the Netherlands. It's happened in Amsterdam. It's happened in the States, in Australia, study after study after study, 85% plus of the prostitution market stays in the illegal market where you can have minors. And when you don't have to treat people well, and you don't have health screenings, 
no regulation of any kind. That, that's what you get. You get an expansion of the illegal market. And then maybe the, the little minority that is legal might have some improvements, right? So the ba- on balance is a disaster. Mm-hmm. Uh, Germany, it's, it's a mess. It's known as the brothel of Europe. And 85% of all the women that are engaged in it aren't from the country. They're imported in because Germans don't want to do it. Um, it. It just goes on and on. So that's legalization. It's a stark raving disaster. Um, decriminalization is even worse because no part of the market can possibly benefit when, when you just simply say, we are washing our hands of it. We're going to pretend it doesn't exist. Decriminalization means we're not even going to pretend to set up a legal system where you could enhance safety. Anything goes, any apartment, any van, any business storefront. If prostitution is not illegal, anything goes, literally anything goes. It can happen anywhere, in any way, any configuration. Uh, One thing that they seldom mention is that they actually are seeking to establish the only untaxed and unregulated form of work on the planet, right? You take the most dangerous thing you can do. You know, no one is murdered more than prostituted people. No one is assaulted more. Um, You know, the homicide rate is somewhere between 50 and 200 times higher in prostitution than any other group of people. And, you know, the average life expectancy is 32 years. You know, the, the statistics are just ridiculous. And, you take that industry and say, the best thing we can do is just pretend it doesn't exist and have mm-hmm. zero regulations, you know, just walk away from it. Right. Um, you know, you can't tax something if you don't have any accountability and no system for registration or anything like that. And that's what they're asking for. They really are. They're not asking for a legal system. And, you know, when you look at it that way, it's like, well, what if the coal industry, the tobacco industry, any industry say, you know, what would you like? Well, how about no taxes and no regulation of any kind? We will do exactly what we want, whenever we want, whatever maximizes our profit, and we're accountable to no one. You know, if, if I wanted to get five college kids together and we're going to have a house painting business and I don't declare taxes, I go to jail. And what they're saying is we want to do that with prostitution. I'm going to go to the high school and get five high school seniors and I'm going to pimp them and we're going to have a brothel. Right. And it's going to be in the van parked in front of the school under full decriminalization. There's nothing illegal about that. And they're saying we don't want that tax and we don't want that regulated. And that's that's going to be better for everyone. Like, I think when you really look at it clearly, it's it's absurd to think that it, it could actually improve things. Yeah. And the decriminalization uh, aspect that I think that's happening in San Francisco. It has been for several years. And we started with the harm reduction uh, mantra of saying that, you know, if, if you're out on the street, you see a prostitute working, you stop them in the, in the act and you cite them because it's no longer a custodial arrest, but you issue a citation and then you take the indicia of the crime, the condoms and the, you know, $20 bills and the $10 bills and, uh, anything else related to the act, and then you give them a citation, there's an expectation. They're not going to walk away and say, okay, I'm done for the night, but they're going to continue. And they're going to do it with, uh, you know, uh, the potential of infecting themselves and infecting others. So in the name of harm reduction, we say, okay, police do not take the condoms, don't take the money, uh, give them the citation and let them be on their way. So, you know, that doesn't stop it. But you can almost see the parallels to the drug uh, legalization, the marijuana. um, If you follow the timeline of marijuana in California, we said, you know, the the people who wanted legalization, the the advocates said, hey, it's it's a health uh, tool. It is a medicine. It is, you know, um, it's cannabis helps cancer patients, helps people who can't uh, eat, have no appetite for whatever reason, and helps people sleep and it helps pain. So let's call it the Compassionate Use Act. And we will bring it in and only people with a prescription can get it. And then boom, that's that ripples under under the current. And then we say, you know what, let's make it recreational too. So that's 
that's I think how we got to where we're at with marijuana, and and that's a disaster. The the black market did not dry up. We still have a black market in marijuana trade. There are still robberies. There are still killings. There's still gang wars over marijuana distribution. So I see the parallels in prostitution and human trafficking. And you said something interesting. What did you say about plants? Um, the, you know, that I understand the parallel. And, you know, in terms of a game plan, if you think about the movement to decriminalize uh, marijuana, you know, they, they were banging their heads against the wall of, of criminalization for decades until they finally started making some cracks and they finally started getting public opinion. And it, and then the tipping point came pretty quickly. And what they're using is the same playbook, you know, for decades. I mean, you know, there've been people trying to advocate to get prostitution decriminalized and, you know, basically got nowhere, but the, they are gaining momentum right now. So, how are they doing it? Well, it's the same playbook. And what they do is they co-opt language from other movements and they kind of force this into it. So there's an anti-policing sentiment right now, the, the you know, defund policing and, you know, against over-incarceration and over-policing and racially unjust uh, mm-hmm. policing and all that. And they, someone in the movement to decriminalize prostitution, you know, they said, hey, let's use that. You know, and they've taken some of the language, some of the concept. Hey, you know what? Let's just go ahead and say it, even though it's not true. What we're going to do is say that policing of prostitution is racially biased. And what they do is they just, you know, they pick on these populations. And it's just another way they can oppress us. So it's actually a blow for racial justice and um, LGBTQ uh, justice and all Mm. of that to, you know, decriminalize prostitution. Well, Obviously, bad policing is always bad, and there's a lot of ways to try to deal with it, you know, to try to weed out the knuckleheads and to, you know, have accountability. And that, that's always going to be true about any, any, <laughs> any group of people. You want to weed out the knuckleheads, you know, and you want to make sure everyone's doing their job right. But, you know, to say that the answer to that is to, uh, you know, decriminalize prostitution and just get police so they are unable to address any aspect of the problem is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then they've taken an anti-policing sentiment and just grafted this issue of prostitution into it. You know, and I, I've been sitting in on city council meetings where there's uh, they have uh, decriminalization uh, by removing the local ordinances, not changing the state law, but getting rid of the local ordinances against prostitution. I've been sitting in on these meetings and the language is real clear. I mean, they basically don't want to empower police to do much of anything. You know, they basically want to strip any misdemeanor of any kind out because Mm -hmm, they just mm -hmm. are assuming that the, the application of those laws is always going to be unjust because you can't trust police. So, you know, the, the, you know, the, the real push for it's coming from a pretty extreme anti-policing place is, is a, one of the big drivers of it. Um, But the thing about, you know, the thing about the the game plan, you know, the playbook that they're using in the movement to decriminalize prostitution, you know, they they use these parallels when they can. But, you know, the parallel breaks down when you think about what you're really dealing with. You know, marijuana is a plant. It's it's an inanimate object. Uh, You know, it's a commodity that you harvest and it could be corn, but it's not right. Right. People are not that, you know, people are living, breathing, sentient beings that, you know, have feelings and you you cannot commodify them in the same way Um, or they shouldn't be anyway. But that's exactly what they're trying to do. The commercial sex industry does exactly that. They commodify humans. They turn them into commodity. And, um, you know, if you get something wrong in the marijuana law and law enforcement arena, People, people suffer, but you're still talking about the commodity itself is, is not, doesn't care. The commodity here cares. The commodity is people. If you get it wrong with them, it's not only the users, but the commodity itself is mm-hmm. people. And uh, it, it just breaks down. There's absolutely no reason to think of them in the same vein. Uh, you know, the proponents of decriminalization, they'll, they try to wrap it up under old fashioned blue laws, right? It's just, you know, the, 
you know, back when you could, you know, get thrown in jail for not worshiping on Sunday or something like that. And, you know, is your horse tied up to the saloon properly, right? They think that getting rid of the, you know, marijuana and the prostitution laws is all part of that. And it's not, you know, when you, even the simplest, most benign looking prostitution almost always involves someone who has been traumatized. Almost nobody goes into prostitution, even if they're not trafficked by Mm -hmm. a third party making them. And even if they're not um, children or minors when they start, which is rare, but uh, even when they're not, most of those people will say they were in some kind of a desperate circumstances. Most Mm -hmm. have sexual abuse histories. Um, Often it's homelessness or housing insecurity or fleeing an abusive situation or some other thing is going on. So it's very, very rare that it really is the type of free choice that we think of when we think about consenting adults doing things because they want to. That's, that's the rare case. You know, the, the vast majority of people who start this, it's as a minor or because someone's making them do it. And those that aren't, it's usually circumstances kind of forcing their hands. So You know, this is not a consenting adult thing like washing dishes or painting houses for a living. It's a completely different animal. And and the communities know it. And the general, most of the public, if you've experienced it, it's happening on your neighborhood or Mm -hmm. next to you or around you, or you know someone who's been into it, they get it. Police get it. Frontline, you know, like social services, they get it too. It's just not a harmless, benign thing. Yeah. I I mean, you're, you know, I res you, what you're saying resonates with me so much. Uh, the, the strategies used in drugs and other successful strategies, the de- defund, um, you know, vitriol and vil- vilification of police as part of the strategy. Um, we've seen that in prostitution and human trafficking. One of our own senators here in California um, said that, you know, police are over-policing uh, LGBTQ prostitutes and wanted to remove the penal code violation of loitering with intent to commit prostitution. Well, cops don't drive down the street point and say, okay, that's prostitution. I mean, there's, there has to be behaviors, right? And they have to be articulated. And so this is aimed at one segment of our population to uh, allow them to freely uh, work on the streets and there's there's no um there's no uh disguising of the behavior it's just that they this individual thinks it's unfair and we've seen it we've seen uh police taken out of uh massage parlors which i don't know what the percentage is if, if you know let let the audience know what percentage of massage parlors where you can walk in off the street are are legitimate and um in California, we've taken, uh, well, at least in San Francisco, we've taken um, policing of massage parlors um, out of the hands of police for inspections and given it to our Department of Public Health, who hired one inspector uh, to to do the inspections. And clearly, that's not possible. What do you, what do you say about the this, the massage parlor trade? <coughs> well, you know, I'm hesitant to impugn the integrity of the legitimate business because there is a legitimate business here i mean there are places they do physical therapy and and they're they're very serious about it and they're trained and you know so i i don't want to say that they're all involved in this um i can tell you what police have told me and some city officials that do inspections um uh one of the cities in the boston area that i I I was doing a little bit of work with them. Uh, They estimate that maybe 85% of the uh, massage and the nail salon types of businesses Mm -hmm. have some sex trade going on. Now there there's a kind of a sliding scale. There's sort of a range there. Some of them are absolute brothels that are just fronting the business legitimate part of it. You know, they're set up, they're owned, they're regulated, it's completely corrupt. Um, some of them, they could be legitimate for the most part, but one or two people on the side to make more money, maybe sneaking it in. Maybe the owner doesn't even know. Um, uh, the same investigator in the city was telling me that they thought they knew of a network where there were, um, 
there were brothels that went from North Carolina up into Maine that were all networked and they could trace it back to the operation of one Atlantic uh, city casino, Hmm. you know, so they were linked together and uh, we know it's, we know it's common and, you know, I don't think anyone's in a position to put an an exact number on it, but I've heard between 25 and 75% of the nail salons and massage businesses have prostitution at some level going on within them, whether it's completely corrupt brothels or whether they're just kind of a side gig that, that some people do within Mm -hmm. them. Um, there's some really incredible investigative techniques that, that can be used, you know, and uh, there's great work being done with, um, you know, like credit cards, looking at credit card transactions and seeing patterns, hmm. you know, that, um, you know, that, that this, again, this is from police. It's not for me. These aren't sure. my ideas at all, but, you know, <clears throat> if a nail salons at business hours are from whatever to whatever, but they're seeing credit cards being run at like 2 a.m., Mm. that's a red flag if if you're in a city you know if you're in a place that has a sales tax and you're but you're seeing all the transactions that are fifty dollars and no cents right they're completely Mm. numbered there there are ways you could just sift and then look through those sort of things and then you know if it's an actual investigation and not just trying to get intel um, you, you really need the probable cause and you can't go fishing in that way, but you can still use the same things to say, well, look, we got probable cause. We, we have the right to investigate them. Their business hours are from, you know, 9, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., but we're getting all these transactions at the other 12 hours of the day. Well, what's that all about? Right. 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 You know, that's another thing. So, you know, and then there's surveillance, you know, if, if it's a, if it's a nail salon and 95% of the clientele are men, that all go in and out for 15 minutes and then you start interviewing them and none of them have had their nails done, <laughs> right. you know? I mean, so, you know, I mean, police know what to do. Sure. Uh, you know, the, the thing is, you know, this to any police officer that does any sort of vice work, this is none of this is new to them, but, right. um, but the thing is, it's really for law enforcement, it isn't like understanding that it's a problem or understanding what to do. It's just simply being allowed to do it and given the resources and the time to do it mm-hmm. and, and for the police department to prioritize it and say, you know, we we need this to stop and we're going to do what we have to do and we're going to invest in the investigations. You know, then, you know, if there's a commitment at the, uh, you know, the upper levels of a department and, and that, you know, it's easy to look at police and say they need to get their act together or prioritize this thing. Police are really, you know, they're, they're, they're much more embedded in the rest of our society. And, um, you know, police can't do things that the prosecutors won't act upon. Right. And that's one of the tragedies of the decriminalization movement. You know, that we have some cities like Baltimore where the prosecutor said, we, were, we are not going to prosecute prostitution. Mm-hmm. If de facto decriminalizes, state law is the same as it ever was, but the prosecutor said, our policy is not to prosecute. Police can't go arresting sex buyers and, you know, you can't if the courts are going to throw them all out. You can't afford to waste your time. Sure. You know, so between the mayor and the public and the prosecutor's offices, you know, it needs to be a community wide effort. And, and, and it really needs to be a, a broader understanding that this is a problem and there's there's a, a way you can make it better. And, and to be aware of the ways that you're going to make things worse. And the decriminalization route definitely is going to make it worse. But, you know, even a chief of police that, that knows exactly what's wrong with decriminalization, they can be stuck with it. You know, if right. the mayor and the public and the pro- prosecutor's office, you know, so that, that's, again, why we, we have a pretty broad kind of well-rounded approach at National Center of Sexual Exploitation. We try to work the public and the policy and not just state legislatures that are federal, but the city attorneys and the um, city uh, councils, because they're also very much involved in in a commitment or the lack of a commitment to actually address these problems, you know, in, in an effective way. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to get into two really great national programs that you have um, that you have on the website. But first, I'd like to take a moment for our sponsor. PoliceOne.com is the number one resource for your up-to-the-minute law enforcement news, training, and incident analysis. Our mission is to provide you with the information you need to better protect your communities and your safety. 
Becoming a Police One member is quick, easy, and free. Once registered, you will receive access to secure law enforcement-only training and video tips, articles and sections, and a subscription to our award-winning law enforcement newsletters. Go to policeone.com forward slash registration to sign up today. That's policeone, the number one, dot com forward slash registration. And we're back and I'm speaking with Dr. Michael Shively, the Senior Advisor on Research and Data Analysis at the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. Welcome back. Hey, tell us about your White House National Action Plan on Human Trafficking. That's fascinating. Well, this is not our, our National Action Plan. This is, uh, this is from the White House. So the, you know, the federal government, they, they had a process that went on for months and months where they had listening sessions and work groups on, on various aspects of it. <clears throat> and it's a continuation of efforts that have been around for over 15 years at the federal level. So there have, you know, the, the 2000 uh, Trafficking Victim Protection Act, you know, established uh, human trafficking as a federal crime. And in the years since, there's been, you know, programs that really, you know, put put the concept of the law into action and, there's something called the Senior Policy Operating Group that really gets uh, representation from every federal agency because every federal agency has a role. So, you know, this national action plan is from the federal government. This is the White House's version of it. And it, it focuses on the, this concept that's been around for, for a long time, which is the four P's. It's prevention, uh, protection, prosecution, and partnerships. And so, you know, the prevention is trying to get out in front of it and keep people from being victimized, but also keep the crime from happening. You know, protection has to do with like, uh, you know, identifying and, and doing outreach uh, with victims and doing better job of supporting them. Prosecution is pretty self-explanatory. It's like finding the bad guys and, and making sure they pay. And then the partnerships have has to do with how do you make all those other things work? And it's really, you know, like, like we said, it's collaboration. So, you know, that's that's the federal plan. Uh, the new version, the first one under this current administration is is what just got released. And um, the thing that's a bit different about this one, as opposed to the prior ones, is that this one uh, specifically mentioned uh, demand reduction as a priority. So by demand reduction, we're talking about the consumer level drivers of human trafficking. So the, the National Action Plan is both sex and labor trafficking. Um, our organization and most of our discussion is really, you know, in the prostitution and sex trafficking realm. So it's just that part of it. Um, you know, the concept applies to both. But when it comes to sex trafficking, we're talking about sex buyers. You know, uh, you do not get either prostitution or sex trafficking if you don't have the buyers, you know, that's the revenue stream for the whole industry. And it's the one thing, if you could knock down the buying, if you could just cut it in half or cut it by three quarters, you're going to cut the problem by half or three quarters, you know, and, um, you know, there are no pimps or traffickers if there are no buyers, because there's no money to be made. So this, um, the National Action Plan, it, you know, I mean, I, I would prefer more action and, and more meat on the bone, but but it's still a victory because demand is actually mentioned for the first time in a long time. So um, the, the new action plan does have a provision in it to uh, conduct research to try to, you know, determine, you know, the best practices and the best way to try to deal with the consumer level demand. Um, so, you know, that that's a that's a new development in in this version of the federal plan yeah that's great yeah go after the money um because that's where it is right uh you know i just noticed a couple of years ago a poster at a restroom at an airport and in like multiple languages it it seemed to seek out those that were being brought into the country um saying hey if you are here against your will or if you're here under circumstances that you don't like call these numbers or, uh, you know, there was some outreach. Um, is that new? Is that, are we doing enough uh, to thwart the, the influx of human trafficking, whether it's sex or indentured servitude or some other labor that people are, are here to do because they want to get into the country? 
Uh, well, I think the pretty easy answer is, is of course, we're not. <laughs> of course, <laughs> not doing everything we can. And, you know, that's not to belittle or criticize any any agency or person. You know, I mean, people are doing a lot of good work and a lot of hard work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, agencies have constraints, you know, but but at the end of the day, are we doing everything we could? And the answer is no, of mm-hmm. course we could. Uh, <clears throat> and part of that is really you know, an education exercise to try to, you know, get people to understand the scope of these problems and not just the scope of them, but the fact that there are evidence-based solutions. You know, I think sometimes when you keep saying, look, you just don't understand how bad this is, you know, it really almost encourages an action. It's like, well, you know, let's throw our hands up and say, look, we're stuck with it and let's just try to kind of manage it. Well, we don't have to do that. You know, we know there are things that if you do enact them, that you can make a lot of progress. So, um, you know, the, the, the part of human trafficking that is closer to the kind of the stereotype from the, the movies and the media, the part where it really does involve transport, you know, the, the majority of human trafficking and sex trafficking doesn't involve smuggling people from one place to another. It's, mm-hmm. you know, people just in a city and it's really the act of exploiting them or not, you know, that's trafficking, you know, mm. it's against their will or when they're minors involving them in either labor or commercial sex, that's human trafficking. You know, people can be not a victim and then victimized and then be, be out of victimization without leaving a building, hmm. you know, so human trafficking doesn't need movement, but some of it, it does, you know, and, and especially at the federal level, what triggers the federal part of the crime is the fact that the commerce spans states or the international border. That's, that's what allows them to get triggered into action, you know, so, um, you know, all 50 states have some kind of a human trafficking law, um, and that's up to the state and local, and that doesn't require any movement at all. But often for the federal part of it, it requires either the use of the Internet because you get the interstate commerce and international commerce, or it's the physical transportation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, obviously, if we've got human smuggling and illegal immigration, you know, some of that is going to be for the purpose of, of exploiting people. You know, so anything that, you know, anything that may be ineffective in our fighting the illegal immigration and the smuggling, of course, is going to have a component where that is also encouraging trafficking. But there's also, uh, you know, people that are just being moved um, and it's not necessarily smuggling, but it could be that they're legally entering the country or, or being moved from state to state, mm-hmm. but um, they're, they're being trafficked, you know, when they get there. Um, and that, you know, to try to deal with that requires a lot of collaboration and a lot of education. So the transportation industries themselves, like we have truckers against trafficking, there are hotel associations, there are, uh, cab drivers, you know, we would like to work better with like Uber and Lyft and those sort of transportation services. You know, basically if you can get everyone's eyes to be a little bit more alert and a little more trained to things that could be indicators of a trafficking situation, then of course you're going to be able to do a better job. You know, if you've got a good relationship between the police and prosecutors, social services, uh, the, the private sector, you know, hotels that, that see things and, you know, if they know enough to spot it mm-hmm. and then they know where to go with that information and then what might happen when that information goes to police, you know, if they, you know, once they have a good experience and they understand that there actually will be action, then, then the wheels can really start turning. So there, you know, there are plenty of success stories and, you know, there, there are a lot of good efforts going on at all kinds of sectors, but you know, the, the bottom line, of course we can do better. And of sure. course we can do more. Yeah. Yeah. I know we, we, we started stamping passports when we had um, convicted sex offenders going abroad, that there was some, some sort of tip off to the other, um, the other destination. Hey, rather than a passive organization that only provides information, you, your website, takes an active role the national center on sexual exploitation is active one of the efforts and and this is probably the wrap-up uh issue but one effort is referencing the dirty dozen how's that work and what's been the pushback from some of these big money organizations who have you know legal teams and you know piles of money 
Well, we have a tiny little pile of money. <laughs> uh, you know, we have very, uh, you know, devoted and, and we're very grateful for the, uh, you know, the sponsors and the donors that we have. And we've got a little tiny, you know, law center that's just been amazingly effective. So we, we do have the law center that has filed suits against uh, the state of Nevada and against uh, Twitter and against, you know, other big, you know, companies and big entities like a state government. So, you know, you don't have to be a Goliath to get involved and to take direct action in these things. Um, but your point is still correct that, you know, we are a tiny little group and um, uh, we're up against some corporations, you know, we're trying to call them out and, you know, we're not necessarily trying to put anyone out of business or anything, but we, when they are um, facilitating harm, then we want to call them out on it. And, you know, our first course of action is direct contact. You know, we always reach out to the corporations and, you know, try to talk with them, negotiate with them, reason with them. Um, you know, Apple, Google, Instagram, Visa, MasterCard, you know, we've, uh, they've had stays on our dirty dozen list. So the dirty dozen list is a way to find the, um, not necessarily the worst, but clearly impactful players who could be helping and maybe either doing nothing or maybe hurting, you know, and as we know that so much of the sexual exploitation that happens now is facilitated by something online, you know, a website, an app, a, a, you know, search engines, you know, there, there's ways that it is, you know, the transacting prostitution and sex trafficking. So, uh, you know, there are things that companies can do to try to like make it less likely to make it more difficult to, to be used for those purposes. And sometimes they let it go apparently because it's more profitable to let it go. And sometimes it isn't that it's, it's really more the concept of being regulated or being restricted in some way. And a lot of platforms have said, <clears throat> look, we're just a paper company. We aren't responsible for the hate filled speech that shows up on a flyer. Right. We didn't write that. We, we just sell the paper. And it's like, well, it's not that simple. Right, you know, yeah. you, you have the capacity to know when someone is pumping out, you know, a hate filled illegal acts, you know, you know, uh, inspiring people to, to commit crimes, you know, that's a different animal. So, um, you know, we've had some real successes, you know, Visa MasterCard, for example, you know, we worked with them for a long time, we did put them on our dirty dozen list and call them out on it. Uh, they've been very responsive. In fact, they subsequently and, and it wasn't just us, we, we are very collaborative in, in every way. So there are other organizations involved that are like us or they share our mission. And the, the collective pressure uh, got them to stop being the financial branch that facilitated Pornhub. And Pornhub got caught uh, facilitating, you know, sex trafficking, you know, having, you know, the sexual assaults of minors online, have the victims and their parents contact them and say, that film right there is of my child being raped. And they just let it go because they were making money on it. And, you know, so the, they eventually took down tens of millions of videos and images because they couldn't be sure that the people were adults or that they were consenting to what was being uh, recorded. So, you know, that, that kind of work, you know, the dirty dozen list, plus the sort of backroom, just back and forth advocacy that we and, and our collaborators have done, yeah, that's definitely direct action that, that has helped. So, you know, we know that we've, you know, helped to try to undermine the finance, the financing of the sexual exploitation industry, and then to get these platforms that clearly have legitimate business and, and the vast majority is legitimate business like Google and Apple and, and that, but try to get them to take more effective and, and, you know, additional steps to try to ensure that they're safe. You know, the, the children have access to way too many things and people and law enforcement are way too limited in their ability to intervene when, when things clearly are sexual exploitation and sex trafficking. And, you know, so it's really a, a kind of a constant battle, but we do have, we've made a lot of progress and a lot of the corporations have been very responsive and we've developed good relationships with them. Oh, that's great. That's great news. And it would be great to see the, the link to the dirty dozen on 
mm-hmm. you know, websites like IACP and PERF, you know, Police Executive Research Forum and the Chiefs Association, Sheriff's Association, because, you know, there's consumers out there that will stop using a product or complain about a product that, you know, tests shampoo or makeup on an animal. Um, right. But in this case, you make these direct ties to organizations that can do something but don't so yeah i don't know why it's not publicized more it's a great effort well fine idea and i will take it up with my (laughs) bosses hey it's been great spending time with you and um and listening to your efforts i'd love to hear more Um, we're going to post a link to the organization on the show notes um, and send me whatever else you have. How can our listeners find out about your studies, your research and what's going on in this uh, issue and arena? Well, I will send you some links, but the, you know, the organization is the nano national center on sexual exploitation. So if you Google that, you'll find us And the website is, you know, in sexual exploitation.com. And, um, you know, it, I'm happy to respond directly to anyone. So if anyone contacts you and wants a direct line to me, I'm more than happy to talk with anyone. My contact information is is on our website, too. Great. That's www.endsexualexploitation.org. Thanks for being on the show. Appreciate your time and uh, good luck in your efforts. Well, it was great talking with you. And if you want to talk again, I'm more than happy to do it. Awesome. Okay. And to our listeners, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show today. Send us an email. Let me know what you think. I'll get back to you personally or somebody from the Police One team. Just drop us a note at policingmatters at policeone.com. That's policingmatters at policeone.com. All right, stay safe and uh, watch yourself and hope that you listen to us again real soon. Take good care. I'm Jim Dudley. 